Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, in the following two episodes, we're going to be wrapping up our look at Harriet Beecher Stowe's uh, with uh, with her, you know, with her book uh, Old Town Folks, uh, published in sixteen, eight, sorry, eighteen sixty nine. Um, we've already looked at the first two parts, first 200 pages or so of Old Town Folks. And I think there's a lot of fascinating things going on in this novel, uh, especially in the first two parts. The first 100 pages is really a, a, a more scattershot, uh, impressionistic view of, of the town, Old Town and the people that live there. And just New England life in general at the time, shortly after the American Revolution. Uh, this is set roughly at the same time period as a minister's wooing, at least the flash, because the whole thing is a flashback. So the narration is taking place like in our time, but the character is talking about times right after the American Revolution. Um, and then in the second part, so, so that first part is really about Horace, our main narrator, and his experiences in the community. The second hundred pages is mostly about Harry and Tina's orphanage experience and being sent to work with uh, two basically odious people, one uh, cruel, one very traditional. Um, and basically, this is uh, setting up the, what, I, what I think are the major themes of the third uh, and fourth part, and to really to the end of this book, which is about education. Um, because we have a model of education, and two models of education actually given in the, with uh, Harry and Tina's caretakers uh, after they get uh, basically apprenticed out um, when they were the key showed up to town as orphans. Uh, old Caleb Smith is taking care of Harry, taking care of roughly, but he's just put to work and he's physically abused and he's just seen as a, as a workhorse, essentially as a slave. And then Tina is is given to someone who on the surface is less cruel, but actually psychologically in, in many ways is worse because she uh, sees she sees education as one of rule-based, of following orders, of discipline. And she herself is a very highly disciplined person. So while old Caleb Smith's like, rage and stuff just gets projected outward onto the victim, in a sense, Miss Exphasia, who's Tina's caretaker, actually thinks she's doing right by her think she's trying to raise her properly and um, and that those are two kind of windows into education that are presented one is a more traditional puritanical education and the other is maybe like a more barbarism uh, an example of sort of barbarian type of education that Caleb Smith is giving of course there's a better alternative which is modern Lockean education and that's going to become the major theme of much of the rest of the novel. Um, but towards the end, we end up with a more, as these characters grow up and mature, we, 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 we move beyond that theme of education to one of being to adulthood and adulthood pressures and adulthood uh, challenges and, and anxieties and things like that, especially with the character of Tina who faces marriage um, and has to endure uh, making the wrong choice in her marriage. But that's getting ahead towards the end of the story. So this novel is a lot of things. It can be a lot of things to a lot of people. I think it is primarily about education, now that I've, I've read the whole thing. Uh, I think it's also about uh, Harry Peter still can't get away from this discourse on religion, very much like a minister's wooing. The Jonathan Edwards revolution in American Christianity is at the heart of what she's trying to say, and her sympathies for a more progressive 
individualist-based Christianity um, comes through here, and her characters that embrace that newer form of Christianity are um, are elevated as, as as good people in the novel. And then there's another theme which I wish the Minister's Wooing could have explored a little bit more, but basically ignored this aspect, and that is the political tension between the Federalists and the Republicans in the early Republican era. Now, it's not presented as Federalist-Republican conflict. Instead, it's presented as, like, are you pro-France or are you more pro-Britain? Uh, so we meet characters who are kind of more loyalistic, more loyalist. Uh, they weren't true loyalists in that they left America after the revolution, but they still think the revolution was a mistake. Um, and they think the French Revolution proves the failures of democracy. And this intertwines with the narrative of, of religion and also uh, Tina's love life. Uh, gets uh, infected with this a little bit. And, and actually the upbringing of Harry and Horace, too, the, the, what happens to the boys. Um, but basically, from this point on in the story, we basically are centered on these three characters, Harry, Horace, and Tina. The rest of Old Town kind of falls to the backdrop. Now, they're not completely gone because Old Town still is part of the tale. It's still the home base. And they still have for sort of a vernacular tradition. So that's a really cool aspect of it. I think it was a big part of the early parts of this novel. But it kind of goes away when we focus more on these three young people and how they grow up. But it's still there. It's like the way, uh, like Sam Lawson, the, the, the do-nothing in town, still carries on information. It's still a source of information for people. Uh, how rumors play a role, how expectations of the community play a role, how, you know, all these different cool aspects of Old Town that were explored early on in the book are still there. So in a way, uh, I like that the, the book is Old Town, folks. This could have had a very different title, uh, focusing more on the theme of of Horace's growing up, you know, or the romance or something like that. Um, but, you know, Tina could have been the center of the novel. Any of these characters could have been the, their experience of somehow turning turn into the title of the novel. But she instead says, no, this is a novel of all of Old Town. And she never really loses sight of that. And I think that's a great aspect of this of this book. So overall, I, I think I can give you my overall feelings at this point that I think Old Town Folks is probably my favorite of these three novels. It's also the longest of these three novels and the maybe most complex. I, I think like Uncle Tom's Cabin, basically just you're just following Uncle Tom around. And yeah, you have the side with Eliza and George, but that's sort of dumped early in the book and doesn't really become important till the, till the end. So you have that. Uh, Minister's Wooing is pretty f contained. It's really just this young woman and her love life and with some community aspects here. But I think she kind of pulls out all the stops in Old Town Folks and, and wants to tell a much bigger story. Um, and I don't know how her audience took it at the time. I, I think I, I, I'm wondering if they appreciated all that she was doing here. Um, but it's it's a big meal. It's like... And I think it's maybe harder to get through for a lot of modern readers compared to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, but I, I think there's something to appreciate. If you like like the big sprawling books, if you like like, like something like The Stand or uh, a novel like that, I think you can like uh, this. Although it's very much dwelling with 19th century themes and especially like the educational and religious theories that are propagated in the novel are very much of the 19th century. So that's just something you have to kind of bear with as you read this book.
So anyways, um, sorry, I'm kind of giving some overall conclusions here when I should be telling you what's in this part of the book, but uh, um, I don't now's good enough to kind of get into that. So let's, let's jump in and look at chapters 20 through 27 of, of Old Town Folks. We start with a chapter with a very long title called Miss Asphyxia Goes in Pursuit and My Grandmother Gives Her View on Education. And the chapter is exactly that. Uh, Miss Asphyxia decides to pursue the runaway children, Harry and Tina, who have already been kind of brought into the community after they ran away to the, to the Dench House, remember the old haunted mansion. They're found there, brought back to town, and and plans are made for their futures uh, with better o- oversight and better um, better caretakers. But Mrs. Asphyxia, who, like as I said, doesn't really think what she's doing is bad. She thinks it's actually what's best for a young lady to learn discipline and control. It, it's basically like Catherine Beecher's domestic economy, but injected in a totally perverted and cruel way. Um, that's sort of what we get here. Um, and she actually does at one point give, she tra- tracks them down. Uh, she tracks them down to Old Town and then gives a lecture to, I think it's, it's Horace's grandmother that she talks to about this. Um, and she basically says, like, you, like, what I'm doing is, is the best thing for her. Quote, no deacon nor deacon's wife nor professor of religion is going to turn up their noses at me. I can hold up my head with any of them and think your religion might teach you better than taking up stories against your neighbors or a little lying, artful hussy will tell. Yes, indeed, you may hide your head, but you can't get away from the truth. Not when I'm around to bring it out. Yes, Ms. Badger, I defy her to say I ain't done well by her. If that's her truth, and I say it now for a blessed minute, and I would say it on my dying bed if you ask. So, if there ain't a child who had everything provided for her, that child could want. A good, clean bed and plenty of bed clothes and good whole clothes to wear and her belly full of good victuals every day. And me teaching and training on her, enough to wear the very life out of me. For I always hated young'uns, and this air's a perfect little limb for her to did see. Why? What did she think I was going to do for her? I didn't make the lady on her to be sure I didn't. I was a fetching on her f- to work for a living as I was fetched, as I was fetched up, end quote. And in a way, I think she has a point. Like, this is how she was raised. And yeah, she's not particularly a happy person, but she's somewhat successful. She's able to keep her own home and care for herself and provide for herself. And she has to. She's unmarried, right? And she has a, a servant, Soul Solomon. Uh, she's able to care for uh, a, a ward. She's done well for herself, and she's done well for herself through this way. Um, now, I think Stowe's point here is not, she, she doesn't want to be particularly cruel and asphyxia. I think she wants to acknowledge that, yeah, this is the fate of many women. But Tina could be more, right? And that we're not limited. So it's like a criticism itself of, of Calvinist. Asphyxia in her own way is very Calvinist in that this is, the fate she's bound for, it was my fate, and I'm just preparing her for the harsh realities of the world. And that means, yes, she's going to have to, like, she's going to have raw hands by her 20s because of, of cleaning clothes and, and caring for the animals and doing all that work to sustain herself. But that's what it's going to have to be. And if she's married, it's just going to be just as bad. Um, you know, maybe different labor, but, but still there. And, yeah, I, I think she actually does have a point. Um, and, but nevertheless, uh, Horace's grandmother t- 
talks back to that and, and basically presents to us, I think this is the first time it's mentioned in the book, but it's certainly if you're reading carefully, you're aware of this, is, uh, is John, John Locke, John Locke's theory of childhood. Actually, it's, it's not his, his grandmother, it's Miss Medible, who's the one who takes in um, Tina after she's freed from the Dench House and freed from Mrs. Fixia. Um, and basically, John Locke's view of ch raising children, I don't know the full name of the book. I think it's just like a treatise on, on education or something like that. But the idea is uh, that people are born tabula rasa with a blank slate. Therefore, what they learn, of course, comes through education, but also their behavior. Are they going to be a good person or a bad person? It's not from birth. It's not genetic. It's not from original sin. It must come from education. So that means we can raise children to be virtuous, to be moral, to be creative, to be imaginative, to be whatever we want them to be, right? And I think Stowe even here makes feminist arguments about that everything men are capable of, women are capable of. For instance, Tina goes to the same boarding school as the boys, um, but they get to go on to Harvard. They basically have a full-ride scholarship from a woman they run into or they meet. She's related to... Horace's family in some complex way. But Tina has to go back to Old Town and eventually marries. And she, you know, has to make a really difficult choice as a young woman. And she makes a bad choice because of, of she basically falls for a man. This is very Wollstonecraft, actually. If you've read Mary Wollstonecraft, she warns against this very thing. It's like, if you read too many novels, sentimental novels like this, you have an image of what an ideal man is. And he's usually going to be a jerk or a... Uh, or a womanizer, or not respect you, or see you just as laborer, or just see you as someone who can produce children. And that's what you're going to be stuck with. You're going to be uh, starry-eyed when you meet them, right? And you're going to want to marry them because that's the ideal you've been given from culture. But that's not who you should be with. Who you should be with is like a friend more, right? That we should marry friends, and we, we should have more mature ideas of what relationships are really going to be about. And, and that means breaking free of cultural baggage. And Tina definitely falls into that. So it's great. As, all, as much as we love Tina, we actually, it breaks our hearts to see her choose the wrong guy. But you sort of understand why. He's like a Continental War veteran. He's a diplomat. He's got a good job. He's well-traveled. He's got connections. He's got wealth. He is like an ideal mate, uh, again, like in the novel. But... In reality, not so much. Um, but sh her choices are quite limited um, because she can't go into Harvard. But all evidence here is she would have done great in Harvard had she been able to go there. So anyways, this chapter is mostly about this back and forth between asphyxia and, and others. And there's other voices here. For instance, uh, Aunt Lewis, Lois. All, there's a lot of characters here, and I don't think we need to dissect all of them. But... Um, Aunt Lois says we need a system to raise children, uh, and I think Stowe sort of agrees with that. She actually uh, speaks to us at one point saying, from all these specimens, it's to be inferred that the theorists on education will find no improvement in the contemplation of my grandmother's methods, of my grandmother's methods, and will pronounce her a pig-headed, passionate, and impulsive, soft-hearted body as entirely below the notice of a rational, inquiring mind as an old brooding hen. In which model of maternity in many respects she resembled. It may be so, but the longer I live, the more faith I have in grandmothers and grandmotherly logic." Um, end quote. So 
you know, but of course, asphyxia has her grandmothers too, and her mother who treated her poorly. So I don't know. It's a universal statement that grandmother's logic is right, but definitely love and or moral education being the heart of of what education should be. I think it's is coming out of this. And that means not just training people to be machines, not just training people to be workers, worker bees. Um, and I think, I still think asphyxia is kind of well-intentioned here, but obviously it's worthy of criticizing her. All right, so in the next chapter, chapter 21, what is to be done with the boy? I guess, based on the title, this chapter is mostly going to be about what happens to Harry. And Harry basically gets taken in by by Horace's people and they're going to become essentially brothers um, but there's a lot here about uh, education and childhood too um, I think for instance we are we get his, we get Harry's character a little bit here he's obviously intelligent and, and and courageous and religious and faithful and all those things we like we already sort of know that from the way he treated his sister when they were sort of in bondage um, but the point here uh, that Stowe wants to make is that children are subject to circumstances more than adults. Adults have some control over their fate. Children don't. And therefore, that's why we need systems for education. If you don't have systems to educate people, people are going to be bound by, by circumstance, right? Like if you have, you know, Parents who aren't like in jail, or parents who are well educated, or parents who are more committed to education, you're going to have a better future for yourself. If they're just wealthier, in many cases, that just takes wealth. But you know, none of that's the choice of the child. So if you want to have a system where you get the best out of everyone, we need systems of, of education and uplift. Um, Basically, he needs a good family, is the conclusion. Um, now, that family is tied to, to religion here. We get quite a lot about the new religious movements. It, it seems this is something Stowe can't get out of her mind, is the first great awakening movements of the American Revolutionary period. Um, and our characters are very, very religious here, especially our male characters. Tina, a little less so, I think. That's already sort of been established, that she's a little more distant from religion, but the boys are, and we see already that they have an ambition for college now. And so once Harry is with Horace's people and living in Old Town more as a, as a proper young person, not just an indentured servant, he can also pray for college. And he has faith that this will be achieved. So much of the rest of the novel will be following Harry's success in this. Horace is almost secondary to it. We know Horace is going to do well because he's writing this book, right, from some future date. Um, so next chapter, 22, Daily Living in Old Town. Uh, we see how Harry gets taken in, um, and there's a lot of there's a lot here. This is like a chapter that is from the first part of the book where we get a lot more of this, just the setting of Old Town, especially on food. Uh, there's a lot of focus here on how hard it is to extract food from the New England soil, about the, the heavy labor-intensive system it required to like get the soil ready, and you know the rocks of New England—they're very famous, right? Uh, you know just how much work goes into producing a calorie of food in New England, and then how that gets that—that's 
one reason the particular political religious systems of New England, the congregational system, the town hall, the grassroots democracy combined with that kind of puritanical religious theocracy, you know, that helped extract this wealth out of New England. It wouldn't have worked. You know, the money-hungry settlers who went to Virginia um, wouldn't have succeeded in a land like Massachusetts. It took a particular type of person to succeed there, and, and Stowe's very proud, I think, of her heritage from that stock of people. Um, we also have a lot here about children in the Bible. Um, I mean, particularly children's relationship to the Bible and how they read it, and, and Horace talks about his own upbringing, uh, being like day-to-day -day with the Bible and how essential that was for his day-to-day -day education. Um, we get more here on Tina's education, too, how she's being raised up properly now with a more planned education from Miss Medible. And eventually Tina's sent to school with uh, the boys. Um, specifically, we get Medible debating someone else on education in this very chapter. This is like, th within three chapters, we have two debates on education uh, given by our, our characters. Um, and I think Stowe likes to do this. Stowe likes to have these contrasts. Uh, she did a lot of Uncle Tom's Cabin at, to a lesser degree in Minister's Wooing, and here there's a whole lot of it. Is in any educational setting, in this case it's Ms. Medible's um, philosophy versus um, Tina's philosophy, who's like the kind of a governess. And Tina is more strict and Melville has the more modern view of education. So the, the, and these contrasts sort of always have to be kind of worked out. And, but Stowe always has her point of view. It's not like true dialectic because Stowe's just doing this to present her view of a more modern child, what might call now child-centered education system based on moral uplift and, and, and love and, and caring for and, and independence of, of young people, all that stuff, all that John Locke stuff. Um, so this is a very sprawling chapter, but it actually covers a lot of ground. Uh, it covers themes that maybe Stowe couldn't fit elsewhere. Uh, but the education thing is being hit a lot. So you know as a reader that, yes, that's what this part of the book's about. This, we're going to be hitting education. Um, so now we get to the trip to Boston. So there's a bunch of chapters that... Uh, was it one, two three chapters yeah that involve a visit to boston so we have uh horace's kind of more extended relations kind of played out here and it's it's a little bit uh confusing with the names but i'll try to summarize what who these people are so the main characters you meet here is um well we have this miss uh lothrop who is um, the minister's wife. So we start with the minister's family. Um, and so we got Miss Lothrop. But she has, uh, her mother is, is like living in Boston. And she's super wealthy. And her name is Madame Kittery. And she's the one who is going to like eventually pay for the education of the, of the boys. But we also get someone with a, a, another Ms. Kittery, uh, Miss Debbie Kittery. So she goes by Miss Debbie throughout the, the book. And she's Madam Kittery's other daughter. 
and Miss Venable's sister, right? So we get uh, all these people are connected. Basically, these are the people taking care of Tina and the, the preachers of the town. They're like extended family in Boston, right? Um, and they are, like, especially Debbie Kittery is a very open, uh, I guess, a loyalist. I, I think it's fair to say that she's a loyalist. Remember, this is set not long after the American Revolution when the French Revolution has broken out. So this is like the 1780s or 1790s, right? And although it's not directly addressed, and I don't know why Stowe doesn't do this, is, of course, you have the Democratic Republicans, the Jeffersonians, who were pretty openly pro-French at this time. And you had the Federalists who are more openly pro-British in that conflict between revolutionary France and, and Great Britain. That's not how, like, Miss Debbie talks about it, though. She talks about it as like, oh, France and democracy, it's running amok. And, you know, we lost so much when we lose, uh, you know, when we broke away from England. She's still, a, she, she's an Episcopalian, right? So the tension between the, you got the Episcopalians who are the people who hold to the Church of England traditions uh, and beliefs. And then you have um, people like the people in Old Town who are con congregationalists, right? Uh, Puritans who broke free of that church and, and have their independent churches. At what point in the book, Debbie even says like, that's not even, a, if you get married in a congregational church, it's not even really getting married in the church. It's essentially just a secular wedding because it's not endorsed by the, the actual Church of England, which is the true religion. So the question of what is the true religion runs throughout all this, these stories. Um, but anyway, so these are those women that, um, they're just rich Bostonian women, um, but they keep showing up in the story. We also run into uh, Ellery Davenport in this part of the story. And he is the, just a, he's just a dashing young man. He's got a military career. He's involved in politics. He's got, he knows how to say the right words. He's very beautiful. He's uh, charismatic, but he's, he's, an, he's basically a womanizer at the same time, right? Um, he is... His wife goes crazy by the end of the book and, and dies, and he, he cheated on her, right? And eventually he basically uses his um, persuasion to, to, to marry Tina, who's still young when they first meet, still a young girl, but he kind of plants the seeds. He's doing a little grooming here, I think, it's fair to say. But when she grows up, she grows up to be very beautiful, and Mr. Davenport takes her away as soon as his wife dies, essentially. And he has, like, other children from other women. So he's a sketchy person, but on the surface, he's very elegant and professional. And he's a good American. He's a good American Democrat. He, he actually doesn't agree with Miss Debbie on a lot of her extreme anti-French, anti-democracy positions. But... He's, he's a very respected member of society. He would be an ideal match for someone like Tina, right? Upwardly mobile, especially for someone who's an orphan, to be able to marry someone like Ellery Davenport would, was, was considered a real coup. Um, so I don't know how much I want to get into all the details of these, these chapters. Um, I mean, the faithfulness to England by Miss Debbie is, is pretty important to kind of uh, emphasize, but 
that would require like looking at like page after page of this because it keeps going on. It's it's maybe laid on a little thick. There's a lot of repetition in this book, um, perhaps more than would be acceptable today um, by an author. But I think it's it's okay. It's not it's not excessive. Um, essentially, there the whole plot here is that they in chapter 22 is called "We Take a Step into the World," where they're uh, meeting with Lady Lothrop, who of course is the the minister's wife, um, and she's of course connected to uh, the Rosenters, Miss Medible Rosener, and and then the Kitterings through through these relations. Um, and they decide to take a tour of Boston, and they're they're told at some point in this that basically the Kitterings like the kids. And so they agree to sponsor their education up through, including going to Harvard. Um, and of course, that's a big boon for them. They're, they come back victors. Um, and it's also a test for them because you, they're given all this money. They're, their future is being laid out for them by this old wealth. And they're basically being uh, sort of tested. And Horace and Harry at one point have to stand up to Deborah. This is in chapter 25 which is set in Easter Sunday. And basically, they, they, uh, Miss Deborah uh, sort of criticizes like their parentage, uh, especially Harry's parentage, because um, they're orphans and apparently illegitimate. So, you know, the parent, the, and they are actually, even though by the end of the novel, Harry's going to find his legitimacy is somewhat restored. Uh, I think it's Debbie makes some comment about his parents, and they stand up to her, even when they've been given all this money. Most people would, I think, nod along. You know, if someone gave you a full-ride scholarship and then said some backhanded kind of insult to you, you might be willing to just swallow that insult. Or because you're getting a lot of money, and, and you need that. But Harry doesn't. So I think that's a really important character moment for, for Harry, emphasizing his, his fidelity to his, his, to his family. Um, also, throughout all of this, a lot of anti-democratic stuff, uh, a lot of anti-French ideology, just, just reminding us just how central this question of do we support France, do we support England, was in the early Republican period and how tied up that was with American politics. Um, now, in Chapter 26, um, and 27, we see the return to, to Old Town. And then we get an interesting chapter called Thanksgiving at Old Town. Um, because, you know, Thanksgiving as an official holiday was, of course, a product of the American Civil War, right? It was something that was established by, by Lincoln. So it's a federal holiday, a national holiday during the Civil War. Of course, before that, it must have been something that was celebrated. And in a sense, it's just a harvest festival. So there always are these kinds of harvest festivals throughout different cultures. Um, but here, of course, New England has a special relationship with, with Thanksgiving because of the mythology surrounding it. Like To this day, the mythology surrounding Thanksgiving is one of Puritan and Indian unity. And we see Old Town is land that has been stolen from the Indians. Stowe is very clear about that. She doesn't hide that. The Indians have been pushed to the margins of society and are living a pretty precarious life uh, there. In fact, they're 
remember when the two kids ran away from the Smiths. They went to live with a squaw for, for a while and then move into the Dench house, which is nearby, the, the abandoned Dench mansion. They're, they're kind of on the borders of civilization. Um, not making much of a living. There are several moments where we're told that like things like how Horace's grandmother provides food and stuff and leaves food around for the Indians who sometimes come in and, and take it and sometimes sleep there. Now, plot-wise, the important thing here is uh, the Bostonian people come. Uh, Deborah comes. It's Dav I think it's Davenport and, and Debbie that, that come. Um, and remember, Tina's still like 10 or 11 at this point in the story, um, and Ellery's already got his eyes set on her. It's, uh, he's, he's sort of plotting for the future, even though he's married at this time, and we don't know much about his, his married life. Um, we find out a little bit more about it later on, but still not that much. He's a little shady guy, but I know they married younger back then, and, and, and sometimes courtships were planned at a young age, not quite arranged marriages, but, and, and I know men often would marry younger. Women, you know, below ages we now consider acceptable, but he's like, he must be in his late 20s, right? Because he served in the Continental Army. You know, I and this like 11-year-old. Anyways, maybe I'm making too much of it. It's, it's kind of subtle, but it's just kind of uh, a little bit of a vibe you get. Um, is that it? I, I think that's enough for now. So this, this in a way, is setting up where we're going to be at the end of the novel, which is uh, El Ellery and Tina's relationship is going to form the heart of the end part of the novel. Um, but I think thematically, this section on education here is really important. And this is going to be taken up again in the next 100 pages, which basically, I, I'm loving how like the sections are lining up here, actually. I think just... The, the 100 page divisions, I had to like extend a few a chapter here and there, but you know, they're, it's lining up almost with like, if, if Stowe had divided this book up into parts, it'd pretty much be how we're dividing this up. Because the next part's gonna be focusing on um, Cloudland, which is the boarding school that the three children go to. Um, and then the final part will wrap up all our plot lines like dealing with Harry's parents. Tina's marriage to Ellery Davenport, um, and then uh, the love interests of, 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 of Harry, who, well, Harry's love interest, Horace, doesn't get his love interest, at least not now. Uh, he's in love with Tina, and, but, but it's more about growing up. So we don't really get the growing up part of the story till the last 100 pages or so, which is fine because there's not that much that Stowe really needs to say to finish the plot up. Although there's a little bit of a joke at the end, like, if I keep writing, you're going to be pissed off at me, she sort of says. Um, so I better stop now. But all in all, I, I still think this is a great book. I, I encourage you to check it out and, and read it. Uh, if you're going to read one other Harry Peter Stowe novel besides uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Actually, I think all three of these are pretty, pretty solid. Um, maybe not the kind of thing you normally pick up for uh, evenings reading, but, but I think worth it at the end of the, at the, end of the day. So anyways, uh, that'll be it for now. Uh, in the next episode, I'll look at chapters 28 through 36, uh, which will um, basically focus on their, their education at the boarding school. Um, so 
that'll be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. Let me know what you think of Old Town Folks if you've been so lucky as to have read it. And uh, until next time, uh, I, I hope you're enjoying uh, this novel. See you then. Oh,